We'd like to thank our sponsors, NoWatch, who are determined to help society connect back to the present moment. NoWatch is a smart jewelry wearable that measures and predicts stress one hour in advance, helping you restore balance and improve relaxation and sleep. With a collection of nine interchangeable gemstones to suit your daily mood and style. Through skin conductance, it knows what your cortisol levels are and where they're headed. With a subtle vibration, you're reminded to stay in the stress-free zone by taking a breath, going for a walk, doing yoga or meditation. The No Watch Kickstarter starts in November. These watches will sell fast, so you want to get yours today. And if you sign up on the website nowatch.com, N-O-W-A-T-C-H.com, you can get an early bird discount. Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. Today's episode is about creating business and health success with intention and purpose with Eric Edmeads. He's widely recognized as one of the most powerful, engaging, and entertaining speakers in the world today. He shared the stage with leading experts like Sir Richard Branson, Jack Canfield, John Gray, Robin Sharma, and even President Bill Clinton. I first heard about Eric through the Mind Valley community and recently took his class on Mind Valley about creating an intentional business and thought we just had to have him on the show. So welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Great. So to kick it off, can you tell us what it means to you to create an intentional business? Well, I think a lot of the life that we live these days is sort of reactive. Um, you know, people have circumstances happen in their life and, and, you know, then they just simply respond to that thing thinking, well, look, I've got to deal with this now, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll plan for the next thing. And they sort of end up on a, on a pattern like that, a track where it's just about um, living moment to moment to moment. And there's a certain freedom in that, but there's also um, a real power in having a directed energy and having an outcome. And, you know, for example, if you and I were going to get in a car and drive from New York to Los Angeles, we, we could do that in a number of ways. We could do it in a completely haphazard way where we're basically heading West, or we could do it in an incredibly goal oriented way where we just have to get there now in a certain amount of time. Or we could set a really powerful intention, and that was to get there within a defined period of time, to enjoy ourselves, to see the sights, to meet great people. And those are three very different trips, and I prefer the third one. Wonderful. So do you often set your intention right away, or do you kind of update it along the journey? I think it probably comes in two forms. I think that there are some um, values that I have about the way I live that um, that have changed as I've aged. You know, I've as I as I crossed over into the fifties, I realized that I tend to worry a whole lot less and and I tend to select things better. So. In the old days, you know, somebody comes along with a project and my, you know, my, my first thoughts are, well, what's the ROI, how profitable is it going to be, how much money can we make on it, how much impact is it going to have? And then lastly, like, will it be a lot of fun and enjoyable? And, and then, and then I got more purposeful and I'm like, no, now the first question has to be, is it going to be purposeful and impactful? And, 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 you know, and then will it be profitable and create a return on investment? And then is it going to be fun? And, you know, today I'm much more like, first of all, is this going to be fun? (laughs) Then once we found out whether or not it's going to be fun, we can determine how uh, impactful it's going to be and whether or not we care how profitable it is. And so I think at one level that um, intentional living becomes a constitution. It becomes just the way you filter the world. And then at a higher level, yeah, there are times when I will begin a project or undertake a, um, a project and really sit down and, and, um, and plan out what my intentions are, but not in the way I would have in my 20s. Where it was all like, you know, very rigid, structured goals. I, I came to a really important understanding over the last couple of years, and that is that God or the universe or life or whatever has a far greater capacity for creativity and satisfying my goals than I do. And so when I get all, you know, stuck on setting goals the way I want them to be, the number of times life has come along and said, man, you just don't even know how to dream. Let me show you how good it could really be. And so I tend to set intentions more from the position of, hey, wouldn't that be cool if it happened like this? And then let's just move forward having fun. 
So Eric, in your uh, course, you talk about a lot of different types of entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, it's fascinating for me because I think all entrepreneurs are not created equally. And so I think you call this like the entrepreneurial path and all the different types of paths that exist. Can you talk to us about that? I mean, I think that it seems like your philosophy of just setting an intention and almost getting out of the way is so powerful because I think so much of, you know, current culture is about controlling the narrative rather than letting the narrative happen. Um, and I think knowing who you are and knowing you know, how you show up as an entrepreneur is such a, a critical piece in understanding also how you fit into the narrative and the intentions that you set for yourself, right? So can you talk to us about that? Yeah. You know, I, I, I've done a lot of work in the, you know, personality profiling space where people are doing you know, Myers-Briggs tasks and DISC and, and that kind of stuff. And when we were setting up our, our entrepreneur programs through Business Freedom, I really didn't want to have an environment where we were like saying, you know, do this test and this is who you are. I wanted to do it from a perspective of um, th this is your nature and this is the path through which you will probably find uh, entrepreneurship more rewarding and more profitable and, and easier. And so rather than it being about personality profiling, it's about kind of identifying the natural paths that people walk quite easily. And this is very important because in our schooling, most of us were conditioned um, to put our focus on things that we weren't particularly good at. You know, for example, if you got a report card and you did very well at history, but you weren't doing so well at math, they didn't write, wow, you know, um, uh, Yasmin is really good at, at history, so she should spend more time on history. Instead, they said, well done on your history, Yasmin, but you need to spend more time on math. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for 12 years, we were conditioned to work on things that we weren't feeling so confident about or enjoying or what have you. And so very often entrepreneurs do the same thing. In fact, they take it to another extreme. And that is the very things that they enjoy doing the most are the things that they have the greatest reluctance to charge for. <laughs> I was having dinner with a friend last night and she's just a dynamo. She's got tons of energy and she's got a very attractive energy. People want to connect with her and she's just very extroverted and all this sort of stuff. And she keeps helping put deals together for people, connecting people, the, the person with the resource and the person with the idea. And she does this all the time, but you know, she never gets involved. She never, she never recognizes that the real value is in her walking her natural path and connecting people. And, and she could easily find a way in many of those deals to become involved in the deals and, and make some uh, return on the investment she's put into it. But again, we've been taught that the real effort has to go on to the things that are hard work. You know, when you work hard, that's when the reward is. And I've just come from this, this idea that what I'd rather do is make my life in a business sense as easy as possible by working on the things that I just love to do all the time. And I have found that I, when I've helped other business owners to do that, they are much more likely to hit flow states where they, they can have levels of productivity that are exponentially bigger than they are when they're trudging through things. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's so interesting that you bring that story up because that feels like so aligned with what's happening in my own world. I feel like I'm constantly networking and bringing people together and bringing deals together, but, you know, have not really perceived that to be, um, you know, something of a business, uh, mm. you know, and I think, I think it's hard because it feels like so much of our capitalistic world is just so transactional. Yeah. And I think it's hard for, I don't know, at least for me, uh, it's been hard for me to sort of like ask to be compensated for things like that, like, like the networking piece and the connecting piece. Um, so yeah. That uh, can be really difficult. And the joke is, is that, you know, in some industries it's just been normalized, but we've all heard the joke about, you know, a doctor sitting on the plane and they, they, they don't even want to say what they do for a living when the person asks them. Cause it's like, Oh, you're a doctor. Oh, I've got this thing with my <laughs> neck. You know, it's like people just sort of expect that you're going to jump in and do that. And, and, and you know what, I think there's a certain benefit in living that way and being that way. Cause the truth of it is I, I, I do that all the time. People sit on a plane with me and, you know, talk, they ask what I do. And then I start telling them like, Oh my God, then how can I change my relationship <laughs> with pizza and ice cream? And I can't help it. I just do it. But, the, but, but at the same time, I've managed to build a profitable 
um, exciting enterprise around those passions. And, and I think that really is um, that really is the skill, first of all, for the entrepreneur to figure that out for themselves. In other words, what do you really love to do the most and how can you build your business so that you spend 95% of your time doing what you love? And how can you recruit people into their flow? How can you identify the people? As an example, I mean, I should not be doing the accounting for my business. I'm actually reasonably good at accounting and I can speak the language and I basically know what's going on. But if you make me do it, I will end up in a rubber room. It, it just, I hate it. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do it for any longer than the meeting I need to attend. And so my natural assumption becomes that everybody must feel that way about accounting, but it turns out that that's just not true. There are people that absolutely love working in accounting. And, and the proof of this is, is that they come along and they do your accounts and then they charge you for it. And then they take your money and then they go buy math puzzles and then they pay to do more math <laughs> because they're, you know, they're doing what they love. And so if more of us can figure that out, but it strikes me that it's a little bit easier in those industries that are sort of established that way. Like if you're an accountant, of course, you're charging for the work you do. If you're a doctor, of course, you charge for that work you do. But the minute you go out into something a little more esoteric or a little more fuzzy, like coaching work or that type of thing, um, then people, yeah, they tend to have this idea that, um, you know, oh, I, 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 I'm afraid to ask for money for this. I'm afraid. And if you really think about it, what does that mean? you're afraid of hearing no, probably. And, and I, I just, I think that what we have to understand is that when we're making our offer out there to the world and the things that we, the thing, the, the value that we present is not everybody's ready for us at exactly that time. And no doesn't ever actually mean no, it just means not yet and move on. Yeah. It's so, it's so fascinating. And I think also, you know, talking about freelance work um, and people not knowing how to charge for, for it, I think, you know, it's been kind of just an anecdotally, I've noticed that people uh, who are consultants or freelancers doing the same type of work uh, sometimes can charge, you know, 10x depending on how they're actually positioning and packaging it. Yeah. So it's it's just so fascinating that so much of like who we think we are is part of like our our own, you know, self kind of narrative of what we think we're worth, you know, so that's a big part of it. And I'm wondering, like, have you always you know, thought of yourself as someone who is worth it or, or did you have to go through kind of trials and tribulations to get to this point where you feel like, you know, um, you know I deserve to be here. I'm just curious. Cause I think a lot of people suffer, um, you know, with that, like, what do I, what do I charge? What do I think I'm worth? Even though they might think that they, you know, create a ton of value, uh, they might second guess themselves. So I'm just curious, like, how do you think about that? And like, what advice would you give to someone? In a sense, you're talking about a version of imposter syndrome, you know, and uh, and everybody talks. It's become this big talking point, imposter syndrome. And and here here's what I would suggest is that, like many uh, things that we think are bad, imposter syndrome is not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. The the truth is, if you've ever met somebody who is completely absent imposter syndrome, they're unbearable to be around. They think they know everything. They're they're no longer capable of learning anything. They can't listen to anyone because they don't question any, they don't question their value and what have you. And so that when we are questioning ourselves, what we're really trying to do is govern ourselves into um, a match between what we're charging in the market, what we're offering in the market, and of course, what we're delivering. And so when you ask like, you know, um, where do I sit on that spectrum? I sit on a constant evolution. I sit on a constant growing evolution. Here's one of the jumps I had when I was about nine or 10 years old, I was shoveling snow for money in Eastern Canada where I grew up. And, uh, and, and then all of a sudden it was like, well, when there's no more snow, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I, I had to find other ways of dealing with that. And one of the businesses I discovered was like raking leaves. I saw all these people raking leaves and I'm like, they must not enjoy that very much. And frankly, I kind of do. So I'm going to go to them and I'm going to fill up garbage bags for them and rake their leaves. So there's this one old guy and I'd, I'd been shoveling his sidewalks for maybe two or three years at this point. So he knew me and I went over and offered to rake his leaves. And he said, well, how do you charge? And I said, well, I charge by the bag. And I didn't want to charge by the hour because I, I I just had this feeling that selling my time wasn't the most effective way of doing this. <laughs> what if I could find faster ways of filling up the bag and you know getting the job done or what have you? So I said, charge by the bag. So he's he said that's great, and he came out when I was about three quarters of the way through the the the, the lawn, and and I had two or so bags already filled up, and then he came over and he squeezed the bags and he looks at me and he cocks his head to one side and he goes, this this isn't like snow, young man. With snow, I can tell when my sidewalk's been cleared and you've done the job. But with these leaves, with these bags, 
you have a huge amount of flexibility about how much you pack <laughs> these bags down. You have a huge amount of flexibility about that. And right now, it seems to me like you're not packing them down very much because you're getting paid by the bag. And, and so you're not providing as much value as what I'm expecting. And maybe that wasn't his exact language, but that's what he was saying. And I immediately got the message from him and it became my mission and my job at that point to pack the bags as full as possible so I could feel 100% good about what I was charging per bag. And frankly, that's how I do everything. You know, one of the reputations that we've developed with our programs is, is that they are among the most effective with the highest retention rates in the industry. And I often put it this way that the reason we have such a big throughput with our clients, once they buy one of our programs or attend one of our uh, um, you know, digital programs or, or workshops or what have you, they're very inclined to do the rest of our stuff. And that's because we pack the bags so full. So that's one of the things is like when somebody's having a difficult time, um, you know, figuring out what they should be charging, they might also be having a difficult time because maybe in some, maybe there's some part of them that knows that they're not going all the way. Maybe there's some part of them that knows that there's more to give. And so if you are giving everything, if you are giving your all, suddenly you don't feel bad about asking for a top level price. And, and so for me, it's a constant evolution. There are these little moments. So that was the first one. And I'll tell you one of my more recent ones is that about, I don't know, five or six years ago, I was doing quite a lot of professional speaking. And I'd been asked at that point to tour with Tony Robbins and speak um, at teach business at his business mastery programs around the world. And I really loved doing it. And then one day these guys came up to me during one of the breaks and they said, we need you to come work for us. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not looking for a job. No, no, you don't understand. We need you to, we, we run a website. We have a hundred million visitors coming to us every year and it's growing and we really need your expertise to help us and so on and so forth. So I had lunch with them and they just wouldn't take no for an answer. They just wouldn't take no for an answer. Now at this point, I occasionally did some consulting and coaching work and I thought already I was charging a phenomenal amount of money because I would charge something like $5,000 for a breakthrough conversation, you know, like a 90 minute coaching session, or I, you know, I might charge some other fee, but, but these guys wouldn't take no for an answer. So finally I said, all right, I'm willing to do like one week a month. I'm willing to do one week a month. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to work full time, but you can have me for one week a month. And it's $20,000 a week. And I, all I was trying to do is say no, but they said yes. <laughs> and so, you know, what we have to be willing to do is risk that sometimes people are going to say no. In this case, I was actually looking for no. So the yes shocked the hell out of me. And then it showed me that I was miscalculating my, mark, my, my, my market value. And, and so it was a valuable lesson. Well, that same lesson can be applied for a whole lot of people that feel a nervousness about raising their prices and feel a little fear. And here, here's the thing. Most people can immediately raise their price by 10 or 15 or 20%. And it wouldn't hurt them at all. Because the truth is, even if they lost, say, 10 or 20% of their clients by doing that, they would just end up doing less work and making the same amount of money. But people have become so sensitive to being rejected. People have become so afraid of hearing no that they're not willing to take the chance. Mm, wow, that's a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, your kind of re disconnect to reconnect uh, philosophy. And I think you, you call it like Freedom Fridays and, and how yeah. do we kind of let go of our addictions uh, I think, you know, especially in the last year, anecdotally, I can share that so many people I know are so burnt out, right? Like even working from home, um, I think there's this desire to like speed up and to maybe numb out um, to what's maybe happening inside. And so I think a lot of people are not recharging and I, I'm just seeing a lot of people, frankly, getting super burnt out. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you could share with us, like, what is your philosophy around Freedom, Freedom Fridays? Um, and how do you deal with, with what you call our addictions? Well, there, there's a whole lot of different principles that go into that conversation, but here's one of them that's really key. H have you ever noticed that you can like have a vacation planned and say you're leaving on Thursday. And so you've got to get a bunch of work done before you can go. And that somehow you're able to get as much work done on Wednesday as th and Thursday as you normally get done an entire week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So there's a time compression thing that happens and people will basically fill available time. And, and, and one of the things I recognized with myself when I saw that is I'd be preparing to do a trip and I would be so efficient 
in the few days leading up to the trip, I would get everything done. I'm like, man, I wish I could be efficient like this all the time. And so funny enough, when I was running my first business, which was in mobile computing and data capture stuff in the United Kingdom, I took 12 to 14 weeks of vacation every single year for nine years that I ran that company. And people around me thought I was insane. You're an entrepreneur. You're, you know, you're, how can you take all this time off? And there were a bunch of answers to that. But one of them was, is that I was so efficient in the week leading up to my trip that every time I went on a trip, I, I just got so much done. So the truth is by going away a lot, I got a lot more done. And as a double bonus to that, I broke two very important addictions by doing that. Any business owner that starts a business is really running the risk of falling into the trap of becoming self-employed rather than a true business owner. And that, that, that trap can happen basically by two things. One is that the company gets addicted to the owner. In other words, the company just can't operate effectively without the owner there to solve problems, answer questions, come up with strategies, create ideas. You know, the company just can't do that piece. So the, the owner is trapped. And then the other addiction, and this is the more subtle and maybe more dangerous one, is the entrepreneur's addiction to the company. Their, their need for, 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 you know, confirmation, for significance, for connection. They get all these emotional needs met by being the owner. And so the trouble is, as long as those addictions are in place, the business owner is likely to remain self-employed and, and, and trapped in the business. But, you know, when you take 10 to 12 weeks of vacation every year, you know what happens? Those addictions get broken. The company learns how to do business without you, and you learn how to satisfy your emotional needs without your company there to do it. And so for me, that time compression thing just turned into a double bonus. So, you know, talking about Freedom Fridays, this is what we do. We put people on an eight-week Freedom Friday challenge, and everybody can do it right now. Like, it's not even that complicated to challenge. You don't have to sign up for it. You can just do it right now. Here's how it works. Assuming that you work on a normal schedule, and obviously everybody can modify this to their own schedule, but if somebody's working generally an office schedule, then what happens is, is that in week one, you stop working at four o'clock. You just stop at four o'clock on Friday. That's it. You're done. Now, that doesn't mean you can't work, but what it means is, is that you must do what you want to do, not what you need to do, not what you're pressured to do, not what you think has to get done, but what you truly want to do. So if what you want to do is to hang out with your family, then that's what you do. If what you want to do is uh, go for a run or go to the gym, that's fine. Or if what you want to do is to write that book you've been meaning to write, then you do that. But the next week, it's three o'clock. And then the week after that, it's two o'clock. And you see what's slowly happening is that you're compressing the time of your week. And here's what everybody who does this challenge does, says to us is, I am fully capable of doing the entire week's work in the first four days of the week. And now I have Fridays. And those Fridays end up being gold for people because they either spend it with their families or they spend it doing fun things, or they spend it doing the incredible, wonderful, creative things that they really wish they were going to do when they started a business in the first place. Oh, I love that so much. And, you know, a lot of the people in the audience are, you know, folks from Silicon Valley, entrepreneurs. And I think this particular point is so incredibly important. Um, I'm going to send you just the, even that section to so many people because um, it's powerful, right? Like you collapse time when you need to get something done and it's so spot on. I mean, it always yeah. happens that way. So uh, Eric, I, I want to talk a little bit about your work and uh, with the Bushmen and switch gears a little bit and talk about Wildfit. Sure. Uh, cause you know, that's actually how I first heard about you had a lot of friends that went through your program and I listened to obviously a lot of uh, talks that you gave about your work with the Bushmen and how it inspired uh, WildFit. So can you tell our audience for those who maybe have not heard of WildFit or not heard about your work with the Bushmen, um, what WildFit is and why you decided to create it? WildFit is, um, a departure from the diet industry. I, I in, a, in essence, what happened is that in my early 20s, I became frustrated with how sick I was all the time. And I, I had been to see doctors and specialists and prescriptions had been given and needles and inhalants and pills and injections and, and creams and all the stuff for the various ailments I was dealing with. And um, one day some friends of mine sat me down and said, maybe it's time to have a new relationship with food. I thought they were insane because I had a perfectly reasonable relationship with food, I thought. <laughs> but I decided as I consider myself a, a scientist, a amateur at that, but a scientist. And what that means is that I'm curious and I'm willing to experiment. So I experimented. And 30 days later, I'd lost 35 pounds or 15 kilograms. And I, um, all of my acne went away, all my allergies went away, all my gut infections went away. I mean, I, I was so transformed that I couldn't believe it. And, and then I became curious about a number of things. Like I asked one of my doctors, uh, 
you know, in all the years of medical school, how much time they'd spent studying food and was shocked to my core to find out that they don't do that. They just don't. They, you know, some doctors do, but they do it as an elective. It's not required to learn a damn thing about food to become a medical doctor. And I, I just think that's wrong. And um, that really irritated me and it made me angry and it made me questioning why it was that I had to spend almost a decade talking to doctors when all I needed to do was change my, my relationship with food. And then at the same time, um, I, I had friends asking me how I'd done it. You know, how did I lose the weight and why did I look different and so on? And so I tried to coach them. But you see, at that point, I didn't really understand um, that diets don't work. I didn't understand that. I, I, I thought, well, if I give somebody the rules, if I just tell them you got to eat more of this and less of that, and then, you know, well, look, it worked for me. But the truth is it didn't work for anybody. And that's, that's how the whole diet industry works. The entire diet industry is based on a psychological model of perpetuation. They want you to feel guilty. They want you to feel shame. And then when the diet doesn't work, they blame you for having a lack of willpower. The truth is, you know, people don't fail at diets. Diets fail people routinely and for billions of dollars. And so some years ago, about 10 years ago, I was teaching business. I, I just finished touring with Tony Robbins and some promoters had picked me up and asked me if I would actually teach business, mostly in Europe. And a lot of my clients would ask me, like, where do I get all my energy from? How, how is it that I don't do jet lag? Why, why is it that I fly from one city to the next and spend 10, 10 plus hours on stage? And, and so I, I said, well, if you really want to know, I'll tell you. And same thing. I would tell them, but they wouldn't change anything. And then that's when I decided to really dive into the, um, you know, the behavioral psychology around food, really trying to understand why people do what they do and why they won't stop doing it even when they want to, uh, really looking at how the food industry has manipulated our subconscious, our conscious, and our biochemistry in order to take our freedom of choice away. And when I really dove into those things, I decided to create um, you know, I, I decided to basically try to make the diet industry obsolescent, you know, by saying, cause the truth is if any diet had ever worked, there wouldn't be a diet industry. <laughs> you know, <why> would <laughs> right. And so that's what kind of led to creating um, wild fit. And I, I did it with eight clients at first. And I was shocked to find that at the end of the three month process, all eight of them had gone through a really significant transformation. And so I started doing more trial classes and perfecting the process and what have you. And then, and then the word of mouth just took off. Like I, I just, I went from a hobby business of a hundred plus clients a year. It was a nice little hobby business to suddenly one of my clients told his clients about it. And there were 200 people signing up. And then another guy did it and another 200 people. We were like having annual amounts of clients signing up in a day. And suddenly I realized I was onto something, you know, that then maybe, maybe I could have an impact here. And then my publisher, the CEO, the founder of my publisher, Mind Valley, he did the program as a client. And he was blown away by two things. He was blown away by how it affected his health, his quality of life, his energy and all that stuff. But he was blown away by another thing. And that was that he stuck with it. You know, basically the way he tells the story is he's driving along in his car and he heard me come on the, on the, you know, cause he's listening to it in the car and he heard me come on and go, hi, this is Eric. Welcome to day 66 of the wild fit challenge. And he's like, I haven't done anything for 66 days in my <laughs> life. What's this guy doing? And so he, he really got fascinated by what we now call behavioral change dynamics and decided to publish WildFit. And now we've had probably close to 50,000 people in 130 countries go through the program. We have uh, a coaching certification program that extends to most of those countries. And, and, and what really has got me is uh, that a, a good percentage of our coaches are actually medical doctors. That have come to us and said, well, what I learned in medical school is great once somebody's sick, but what if I could learn how to stop that from happening? And so, uh, and then, and then, you know, I had the real surreal experience of having the Canadian government uh, summon me to, um, to the Senate floor to present me with a medal for the work that I'm doing in improving wow. the quality of people's lives. So the entire thing is kind of surreal for me. Um, I, I, I still haven't <laughs> adjusted to it. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of people uh, join the program right after this. I was also wondering if you could speak a little bit about your experience with the Bushmen and how that also inspired you. Cause I thought that those stories, um, even just one story about the, you know, how you spent so much time with them and how you kind of observed their life and how they were eating. Um, that could be really helpful for our audience as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I should offer a couple of disclaimers. Uh, one is that, um, you know, I, I'm not here to overly romanticize the life of the Hadza people or the Kung people that, that, that live these hunter-gatherer lifestyles. I'm not here to suggest that they, you know, that that's exactly how our ancestors lived. But, but I, I do want to suggest that 
the way they live is probably the closest representation to our ancestral lifestyle that we have on earth today. That's all. And, and then the other thing I want to say is that it's actually become very vogue to go and visit the, uh, the, the Hadza <laughs> people, you know, and most people will go visit them and spend like, you know, two hours on the fringes with some of them that are conditioned to tourism and what have you. And they'll get a couple of nice pictures for Instagram. I've even taken uh, some people <laughs> with me on these trips, but I obviously, you know, having done it for 10 years, my trips are a little bit more detailed. In fact, recently I took um, Jeffrey Perlman, one of the, 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 the ex-CMO and one of the co-founders of Zumba, uh, a Paul Saladino, author of the Carnivore Code, and Anthony, and I just can't place his last name at the moment, but the, the founder of Perfect Keto. And I took these guys with me because I do think there is so much to learn from those people. How it happened, how I started doing it was about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was running these leadership programs where I would take people up Kilimanjaro as a... Uh, um, as a leadership program, um, you know, for self-analysis, mental toughness, communication, and leadership. And I came down the mountain one day and my logistics partner in country had Googled me and he said, wow, I, 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 I've seen the work you're doing in the diet space and, and what have you in the, in the, in the nutrition space. And I think you got to meet the Hadza people. Let's go find them. And back then it wasn't so easy. Like now, you know, they've, they've kind of, um, they've kind of been a little more integrated and it, you can kind of set things up. But back then we, we, we had machetes and Jeeps and we're driving around looking for them everywhere. <laughs> and finally we found them and my life was transformed. Um, it was absolutely transformed. I, I really truly felt, and again, at the risk of overly romanticizing the whole thing, I really felt like I'd stepped out of a time machine and there I was in a place where people don't have homes or houses. They have camps that they move between. Uh, they don't have food storage. They don't have money. Um, they 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 they're just amazing, phenomenal people. And and so I've been going back to visit them sometimes with like embedded deep stays. Like I've done stays where I don't even take food with me. I take water because I'm, <laughs> I'm not stupid. But but I have gone without food and just lived with them in that sense and hunted with them and really embedded myself in the lifestyle. And I, I, I don't think anything else has been a more powerful influence on the way I see the world and the way I see my life. And here's one, one big observation. I really haven't discussed this so much because it only really came out of my last visit with them just now in February. Um, but the uh, earlier this year, I mean, but the, the, the distinction I found is that when you're visiting with them, everything they do everything they do is pleasurable. Like everything, everything that they want to do is pleasurable in some way. They want to, like they, they, they love hunting. They love it. They love climbing trees, looking for honey. They love digging up, um, you know, root vegetables. They love singing and dancing around the fire. Like there's never a moment where one of them's like, I should procrastinate this. <laughs> they don't have that. And, and what it made me realize is that they're pleasure centers, their neurotransmitters, which are the same as ours, by the way, are calibrated so that for them, hedonism is a survival strategy. For us, it's lethal because the ways that we, you know, the ways that we pursue um, pleasure are very often at a very high cost. We eat certain foods for pleasure and they're killing us. We, we use, so we, we consume social media in ways that are not good for our psychology. We, we, we do all, you know, we, we get into consumerism, we get into jealousy, we get into, there's all kinds of things that we get into that, um, that take us too far. And it's because our emotions and our pleasure systems evolved for that reality and we've left that reality and, and we wonder why we find like, here it is. Life is easier than it's ever been before. And yet suicide rates are higher than they've ever been before. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to talk about how the pandemic may have shifted your perspective on all of this. Like, you know, especially since it's so interesting how health has become like such a big issue in the last year, yet people, you know, are wearing masks, but still eating badly and smoking and drinking excessively. And so it's just interesting to me, you know, how, how much I think health has become such a big, um, you know, subject, but also a, a place to kind of numb out and not take seriously. Like it's, it's sort of like we're, we're in this paradox, right? Like it's, you know, and so I'm, I'm just curious, like, has the program or has your philosophy on health changed at all in the last year? Have you seen more people, uh, join the program, um, during the time of COVID or, or less? Like what, what has sort of been, or I don't know if you're tracking that even, but, um, yeah, of course we are. Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen all kinds of, like, let's go back to February of uh, 2020. I, 
I was one of those people that was considered an alarmist. I was, I was one of those people that was considered um, overreacting when it was all starting. I was, I contacted the, the um, general manager of our business and I told her that we should stop selling tickets to any of our events. We had a bunch of big live events coming up in June, right? Which is months and months away. And she said, what are you talking about? It's just, it's, you know, we've been through this before and maximum worst case, it's two, three weeks to flatten the curve. And I said to her, no, this is minimum three years. And she really, honestly, she thought I was crazy. Then another friend of mine who runs a big, big company was like, uh, he, he wrote this big piece. I'm not going to get caught up in the media fear. We're not canceling our events. We're, you know, and I wrote to him privately, DM him. And I said, you want to cancel those events and you want to cancel them now. And he said, do you really think so? And, you know, of course, even three weeks later, they all recognized. I mean, you know, anybody who was an extremist and terrified and everybody thought was irrational in February, by March, everybody got it, right? They're like, okay, this is a lot more serious than we thought. But by the time March came along, I was on to thinking about new things. I was on to thinking about the fact that our immune system is going to be the last line of defense. It's going to be the ultimate, you know, we, we can get into the whole vaccine debate another time. But the reality is, is that before we even need to debate vaccines, there wasn't one. So what do you do when there isn't even one to debate? Well, then you got to make sure you take care of your immune system. And what blew me away is I uploaded a video about this and it went semi-viral. I don't know, like a few million people saw it. It wasn't massively viral, but what really cracked me up is the number of, you know, pseudo pseudo experts that thought they knew about immunology and thought that, and many of them were even doctors and stuff, ripped me apart for uploading a video during which I said, listen, you got to make sure you're getting enough air and sunlight. You got to eat and you got to rest and you got to make sure that your needs are getting met because that is how you make sure you've got a really strong immune system. And of course, you know, all that stuff played out and I was fully vindicated. You know, I made comments about going to the sun. Guess what we found out? Low vitamin D correlates with COVID outcomes in a major way. You know, so I was I was really kind of ahead of the curve with that kind of stuff. And that's great. And, and as a consequence, many of our clients have written to us over the last year and said, hey, I had COVID and it wasn't even a thing. Like they've gone through this health renaissance. And by the way, I, I don't know if we can take credit for that. Many people went through COVID asymptomatic, but a, a, a huge number of our clients have said that. And, 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 you know, that they were so grateful to go through a program of cleaning up their metabolism and their relationship with food and therefore feeling really strong from an immunity perspective. Now, remember, I wasn't suggesting that we do any of this stuff instead of wearing a mask or instead of getting a vaccine or what have you. What I was saying is that when those things fail you, when social distancing fails you, when, when, when those things prove to be incorrect, like for example, you were told to wipe down all your counters and wash your groceries when you bought them. Like it was only a couple of weeks later that the CDC came out with a study that showed that your chances of getting COVID from a surface was less than one in 10,000. And yet people were still disinfecting your hands and disinfecting surfaces, right? So we've been floating around in this world of half information, misinformation, disinformation. But the one thing that remains true throughout this entire issue is that if you take care of your physical body, your physical body is in a better position to take care of you. Yes. And that, mm -hmm. I, you know, that's what I stand in terms of numbers. Yeah. I mean, we've had probably uh, without question, we've had one of our best years ever. The numbers of people doing wild food are higher this year than ever before, because people, um, you know, their friends are going, man, you got to do this thing there. They're, you got to, you got to go change your relationship with food. And by the way, I want to say this. I really don't blame people because look, we were told it was two to three weeks to flatten the curve. If you're shopping for two to three weeks, I suppose apparently you have to buy a lot of toilet paper if you remember. But <laughs> on top of that, what kind of food do you buy when you've just been told by the government that you have to take a two or three week vacation? Oh, uh, what the hell? You buy the fun stuff. You buy the vacation foods. You buy the cookies or the frozen pizzas and you get some ice cream and stuff. Because what the hell? It's two or three weeks. But you know, of course, that that two or three weeks turned into four months. And 76% of Americans report that during that four months, they gained 16 pounds. Wow. Which is, by the way, five times the normal annual weight gain of American. So, you know, we're we're headed for another epidemic, which will be far more lethal and dangerous than the one we've just been through. Because before all this happened, diabetes and, and obesity, these things were already killing as many people in a year as COVID does in a year. They were already doing that. And now it's going to get worse. And by the way, I think you can tell I, I have a lot to think about or a lot to say about this, but here's my biggest message. This is the message for, for Biden. This is the message for Johnson. This is the message for Macron. This is the message for anybody who claims to be leading a country that you have not stood up to the food industry, that you have not stood up to sugar, that you have not stood up for the metabolism of human beings, that you've not stood up for natural immunity while supporting the other issues, that these countries have not shown the data that is absolutely clear that if 
you are suffering with a lifestyle disease, you are literally 10 times worse off with COVID, 10 times more likely to end up on a respirator, 10 times more likely to end up dead. And nobody's talking about that. And and that just tells me they all need to be voted out. We need new people. <laughs> wow. A lot of passion there. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I mean, I think it's, it, you know, it's interesting. The protecting your immune system is such a an obvious, logical, you know, conversation to have that I think a lot of people are, are sort of um, looking at as, you know, like tangent adjacent or tangentially, but not like the direct kind of thing that they should be protecting. And it's also the one that you can control the most, right? Yeah. So it, like, you know, I agree uh, with a lot of what you said. And I think it's almost an objective truth that the last line of defense is your immune system. And of course, you know, I'm not saying that that should be instead of all the other advancements that have come out, but it's something that we should be absolutely considering, especially as the Delta variant comes out, right? And um, is is kind of becoming more of a global uh, situation and other variants, right? That are maybe not going to be as protected uh, by any vaccine. So um, yeah, so I'm going to move, move on. <laughs> I think, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of conversation about how the pandemic has been managed. And I think a lot of uh, emotions as well, um, you know, with, with what, what's happened in the country. Um, but I, I want to actually switch gears a little bit, Eric, and talk about, I've listened to a lot of your videos. So I thought, you know, this one in particular really stood out to me was, was how, you, you know, you mentioned that you can change your life by giving one great talk. And I'd love to know what you mean by that. Cause I think a lot of people, um, are, are interested in, in doing more public speaking and, you know, perhaps getting their message out there. And so, yeah, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I used to be absolutely phobic of, um, public speaking. I mean, really, truly terrified, nauseous, like vomit on my shoes type terrified of it. And, um, and so I resisted it at every turn. And then there came a point in my life where I had a mission and that mission became more important to me than my fears. And so I had to figure out how to overcome it. And so over the years, I, I've now spoken in over 25 or 30 countries and I've shared the stage with some just truly phenomenal people and, and I've learned a great deal. And one of the things that I observed is that I, I have watched people change their entire lives by delivering one well-constructed, one well-delivered talk. They just change their whole life. Now, Look, you take a look at somebody like Simon Sinek. I mean, Simon Sinek is incredibly intelligent. He has a very, um, he has a great way of looking at things, really fabulous perspectives and what have you. And one day he did a TEDx talk and that TEDx talk went on to get millions and millions of views. And, and then, you know, his speaking fees like added a zero to them. And all of a sudden his, you know, he was, he was launching best-selling books all over the place. Now, I don't want to suggest he wasn't headed there anyway. What I'm saying is, is that one talk turned everything around, accelerated everything. And, and by the way, Brené Brown, who I'm a big fan of, I, I love Brené's work and I, I, I watched her documentary on Netflix, but without the one talk that she delivered, there is no Netflix special. And I dare say that many of the books wouldn't have been nearly as successful as they were. And by the way, the way she tells the story is she went off again and did a TEDx talk. And, and um, what, what was very different, by the way, about her talk was that previously, um, as, as a scientist, she had done a lot of work um, researching things like vulnerability and so forth, but she'd never used it. She'd only spoken about it dispassionately, academically. And so this time she decided to do a talk that had some real vulnerability in it. And of course the talk just went crazy and she got home and she found out that there were like 600 people had watched the talk. And she's like trying to call Ted and going, take the video down, man. I don't want, I take the video down and then 6,000 people and then 6 million people. And now she's had five or six New York times bestsellers. And I tried to book her to speak at a conference in Copenhagen. I want to say six years ago. And her fee at that stage was $30,000. And she said, no, and not because she was booked. She'd already confirmed, her team had already confirmed she was available and was thinking about it. And then in the end decided, no, I don't feel like it. And I remember thinking to myself, that's impressive. How cool a life to be in a position. And I, 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 I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to, to be in that place, but how fortunate to be in a place where you can actually turn down a two hour job that pays $30,000, <laughs> you know, how, how fortunate, but you know why? Because she delivered one talk that changed everything. And this this is a, a concept that I, I believe comes from our evolutionary biology. See, 
you know, long before there was TV, people sat around the radio and, and listening to the radio as a family. And, and before that, of course, they sat around the fire. And, and, and then storytelling became the predominant method of sharing tradition and teaching. And so our brains respond incredibly well to story. In fact, if something doesn't evoke an emotion in you, you won't remember it. That's just, that's emotion is the glue that causes memories to stick. That's how it is. And so the great storyteller around the fire that tells this story that sticks in your memory. And then a week later, you're out walking and two hyenas walk by and you remember this person's story and you use the strategy they, they suggested to you and you survive. Whose fire do you want to sit at for the rest of your life? That one fire, you learned something in that day that saved your life. And we're in a position where that instinct to listen to stories and that instinct to learn from them and that instinct to give credit to the person who shared the story with us is a long held human tradition. And so now if you have a message you wanna get out to the world and you construct it really well and you deliver it through the power of, power of emotion and story, then you have the opportunity to have an impact that can change your life, but also frankly can change the destiny of your, 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 your society, even your country. Mm, I love that so much. Wow. And for those who are just starting out, uh, do you, you know, imagine that they do more like kind of free, uh, public speaking or wait until they get to like a TEDx uh, stage? Cause I think that's been interesting. Like, do you just wait until you feel like you can actually deliver something great or do you just kind of practice, um, you know, until you get there? Well, yeah, I, 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 I think you're setting me up for an obvious answer here. I mean, how are you ever going to feel great without a practice, right? You know, like how, how are you going to get there without learning the skills and practicing them? But, but here's the great news. This is, this is the best news I'm going to give anybody all day. Are you ready? This is truly good news. <laughs> okay. If you want to become a great golfer, then what we're going to have to do is go out and hire a phenomenal golf instructor for you, maybe an ex-pro or an ex-caddy or somebody, right? If you want to become a great tennis player, same thing. But how long is it going to take before you can be good enough to play professionally? Well, first of all, probably impossible. I mean, unless you're 15 years old and even that's too late, right? But, but, but how long would it take for you at least to become a really awesome golfer, tennis player? Well, if you practice every day, three, four hours a day, got the right coaching, you could probably get there inside of five or 10 years. But see, speaking isn't like that. Speaking is something that you were born with. Everybody was born with it. Everybody is, is a natural communicator. Everybody has it in their instinct. They were all born that way. And then it was trained out of them, trained out of them by a domineering parent, parent who told them that they should think before they could speak or that they should use their indoor voice or that children and women should be seen and not heard. You know, this rubbish that so many of us grew up with. And so what we, what we really want to do is, is understand that we are naturally good communicators. We are naturally good communicators, but we've now developed some um, ego protections and fears that hold us back from that. And so the good news is, is that by getting out and practicing, by, 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 by pushing through those fears, by getting the right coaching and training, you can truly have a transformation and become a world-class speaker in months. It doesn't, it's not something that's going to take 10 years. And, and by the way, just, I mean, come on, like tell Yasmin, have you ever been to that conference? You know, the one where you're, you're there and you, and you, you really wish that you had got up and left before this speaker started because now you're trapped in your chair. Now, yes, I, I know you've been there. I've been there. Here's what I want you to know. Whoever that was, was paid to be there. That's the standard we're talking about. Like you go to a conference and somebody's boring your ass off. You, you wish you weren't there. You're like looking at Facebook. Suddenly you're thinking, I think my bladder's full enough to call that an emergency. I'm out of here, man. Like the person who's making you feel that way on stage is being paid to be there or at the minimum, their expenses were covered to be there. That's the standard. And so when you look at that, you realize any one of us sits around the dining room table with our friends. And as long as we feel comfortable, we can tell stories better than that boring conference speaker, which means we can have an impact. Mm, and by the way, one that. more piece of good news. <laughs> you no longer need some stuffy, stuffy middle-aged man to approve you onto the network anymore. You know, that's how it used to be. No more. Now there's YouTube and Vimeo and Instagram. You can get out there and get your message to the world. You don't need anybody's permission to do it. Mm, I love that so much. I love that. My, I was very fortunate to grow up with a father who is like the best storyteller ever. That's awesome. <laughs> and he would just leave us hanging every day, you know, like yeah. a, until it got to like the next stage. And, you know, so he's very captivating. Um, so 
We are going to wrap up, uh, but I just had a couple more questions, Eric. I could talk to you all day. I mean, you have so much <laughs> knowledge and interesting stories. And I love how you've actually woven in your stories into the conversation. And that's what you do as a speaker. It's very effective. <laughs> um, I'm still imagining your, your leaves uh, packed in that bag. And I probably won't ever forget <laughs> that story. So um, what sort of things have surprised you the most on this journey? You've done so many different types of businesses. And by the way, I think you should, maybe a next one could be like how to help people with public speaking, because that would be, uh, feels like there's a, a big window of people that I think want to improve public speaking and, you know, just want to throw it out there. <laughs> um, well, you're, 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 yeah, I've done it. Um, oh, maybe, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I started a, um, uh, an organization called SpeakerNation.com, and its entire purpose is um, educating and helping people become comfortable with their communication in front of audiences or in front of cameras, creating digital programs and all that kind of stuff, because exactly what you just said. You see, I was teaching business, and I was in Stockholm one day teaching one of my business programs, and I had about you know 50-ish entrepreneurs in the room going through a five-day process with me. And one, one day, one of them said to me, well, Eric, what's the, um, you know, what's the number one marketing you know, what's the number one marketing thing? If we can't do them all, what's the one thing we should do? And I said, oh, that's easy. Every entrepreneur should become a comfortable and confident public speaker. Warren Buffett has all these degrees and honorary degrees, but I'll tell you what, none of them hang on the wall in his office. There's only one certificate that hangs on the wall in his office. And that's the Dale Carnegie public speaking course he took. It's the most powerful education you can have. That was my answer. Well, that got everybody asking a million questions about public speaking. I'm like, this is a business program, guys. We've got to move on to the curriculum here. And they protested so loudly that the next day they demanded that I create a public speaking course for them, which I did, which ended up becoming our highest rated program. And that led to the creation of Speaker Nation. So, so we're, we're doing it. Wow. Amazing. And so people can sign up today. It's still... Yeah, you can go to speakernation.com and we have digital programs and um, uh, we have digital programs and we have traditionally had an on, we have traditionally had like an online mastermind that people could join with weekly practice sessions and stuff. We are just going through a revamp where we're going to be launching localized cities, localized, um, localized clubs where people can go and practice their speeches in person. We were just starting to launch this back in um, early 2020, but I don't know if you heard about this whole pandemic thing. It kind of got in the way. And so we focused on digital and now we're going to start moving to in-person in uh, clubs and practice again very soon. So people can find out all about that at, at speakernation.com and at the Speaker Nation Instagram account. Okay, great. And we'll leave that in the show notes as well. Cool. Um, and so- Now, I think I missed your question of what surprised yeah, me most, was, but there's so much. Yeah, is there something specific you're thinking of? Like, wh where can I go? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you could take it from like a business perspective or just, you know, on humanity perspective, like all the people that have joined your programs or, or taken one of your classes, like what's sort of something that maybe has surprised you the most about where we're going? Um, I think, cause you have such an interesting lens on a lot of different like interdisciplinary areas. So I'd just be curious, like, what do you, maybe the better question is like, what do you spend most of your time thinking about? <laughs> um, Wow. I, 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 I want to give you one shallow, one deep, if I can. Yes. Um, the shallow thing that surprises me the most is that I, it turns out money can buy happiness. <laughs> and, uh, and, and of course I'm kidding because we know plenty of people that have tons of money that aren't the least bit happy. And we know that, but what I really mean is this, that take, for example, WildFit. When I started WildFit, I didn't start it to make money. I didn't intend to make money. I was simply giving back to my existing clients, adding another service for them. In fact, we found that people weren't even really willing to pay for health coaching. So we charged a fraction for health coaching that we did for business coaching, even though the resource commitment was exactly the same. The same business program was $5,000 per member and WildFit was only $1,500 per member. And yeah, we weren't going to make money on that. It just didn't make sense. But I didn't care about the money. I didn't need the money. I was able to focus. And this is a big thing. You see, when somebody is focused on money, they make decisions in that moment. It has to be the highest priority. But in my case, it was like, I don't need to do that. I can work on this because I'm passionate about it. And that allowed me to work on it long enough that it developed a momentum of its own. And incidentally, no other business that I've ever been involved with has been more profitable and more impactful financially for me. But if we put this into terms for the average person, think about it this way. If somebody has a job that they hate and they don't have enough money to survive to the end of the month, they can't leave that job. They can't. They can't take the risk that they quit and don't find another job. You know, they're, they're kind of like Spider-Man going from web to web. You can't let go of the one web till you caught the next one. Like you're stuck. 
But the minute you've put one month of money in the bank, now your boss better be just the slightest bit nicer to you, don't you think? <laughs> and then once you've got three months, your boss better be damn well respectful. And once you have a year of money in the bank, your boss better be careful. Because at that point, if your boss is disrespectful or revokes the shares they promised or any of that stuff that happens, you're in a position to go, hey, I'm out. I'm out because I've got security. And what's really cool at that point is you don't have to rush off and take the next time for money job. You can instead think, what would I love to do right now? Because I've got a year of runway in front of me. And so in that respect, I really do believe that everybody should be focusing on putting a tiny little bit of money away every month, paying down their debts, and just socking away that little bit of FU money, they call it. But you know that little bit of money that allows them the freedom to choose what they want. So that's that's the shallow thing that that I would say that surprises me that people don't really do that and don't seem to understand that sometimes and live paycheck to paycheck. And I just, I love helping people turn that around. The deeper thing that surprised me is um, something that I've been working on for a long time and it just really hit me this year. I mean, I've been working on this for, I don't know, in some form since I was 12 years old. My grandfather was, my great-grandfather was an archaeologist who discovered at the time the oldest homo sapien skull in the history of earth, 259,000 years old. And I've held a model of that skull in my hand sitting in the National Museum and found myself deeply curious about what that person's life was like. What was their life like? And that has led me over the years of meditations and research and reading and visiting with the Bushmen and that stuff. It's led me to observe something. And that is something that we call the evolution gap. And that is that, that our genetic evolution has traditionally happened at the unbelievably slow pace that kept match with our environment. As people slowly migrated away from the equator, north or south, their skin slowly got lighter in response to needing more sunlight to get through. This is a very slow thing. But then you take one of those people who move their way all the way up to Norway slowly over millennia, and then you put them on a plane and fly them back to the equator. They burn their skin and it's bad. This is what we call the evolution gap. And I would suggest to you that so much of the pain and suffering and anxiety that we suffer today is because our physical and emotional and, and, and our, basically our physical and emotional evolution and our biochemistry evolved for a very different society than we live in today. And if we can learn to close that gap, well, we can end the suffering because it doesn't have to be that way. The ultimate life is to figure out how to master those things and live with the creature comforts of technology today. Mm, amen to that. That's so powerful. And I think especially as technology becomes more advanced and exponential and we have like this mental health crisis happening, yeah. right? We're not living in a natural environment. And I think it's just going to get harder, right? So... Very yeah, like how, how is it that we're living in the safest, safest, safest times in history? Truly, we are. Even with COVID, we're, we're living in the safest times of all times. Do you know, like, I just, I want you to think about this. Like, even 200 years ago, if you were on the battlefield and you got an injury to your arm or leg, the first thing they did, because they were so afraid of gangrene, was they'd cut it off. They just cut it off. And by the way, they didn't have painkillers back then. Oh my God. <laughs> that was just 200 years ago. And there's a million more examples like that. And so we live with the least suffering, the most abundance, the, the least poverty that's ever been. Sure, there's still poverty, but it's lower than it. We live in the best of the best of the best of times. And yet there's more antidepressants, more addiction, more suicide than ever before. And that's because our compass was designed, our emotional compass was designed for a very different lifestyle. And so we're struggling to navigate this one. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like the capitalistic world is just interested in results <laughs> at the expense of emotional health, mental health, uh, yeah. relationship. And and so, yeah, it's not serving people. Um, yeah, it's been a tough, I think it's been a tough time for a lot of people in this last year, the level of isolation and um, loneliness, really. I think a lot of people are really lonely. You know, so. Yasmin, what's kind of interesting is that a woman wrote a book in the late 1800s called Suicide. And in that book, she suggested that suicide rates would drop in the event of global warfare. And then World War I came along and suicide rates dropped. And then World War II came along and suicide rates dropped again. And, and, and they don't climb back right away. They climb back really slowly after the war's end. 
And I will tell you that there was a lot of press in the early days of the pandemic. I even believe that it was true that there were some spikes in suicide rates. And in a couple of communities, in a couple of age groups, there were some spikes in suicide. But the truth is, I understand now that suicide rates are down in this pandemic. And the truth is that very many people will tell you that as hard as the pandemic has been, that their life has a richer quality to it, that they have, that they, 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 they've ended up bonding more with the people that are in proximity to them because they didn't have the such freedom of choice. Now, listen, I'm not saying this pandemic hasn't been unbelievably painful and difficult. And I know people have lost loved ones and I'm not downplaying any of that. I'm just pointing out that suicide rates seem to go down when we're faced with adversity. And, and that's because we like adversity. Look, when you're playing a video game, you don't play the video game for the easy parts. You play the video game for the hard parts. When the hard part comes, you, you sit straight in your chair and you get excited and you get ready. And if you fail, you try again. And if you fail, you try again. And the best emotional payoff is when you beat the tough level. Well, I want to suggest that that's the exact same set of rules we should be applying to the human condition. Everybody's sitting around here thinking if life was just a little easier. And I'm thinking, as Jim Rohn always put it, what if we just instead prayed to be just a little bit stronger? In fact, I saw Morgan Freeman the other day. I think it was Morgan Freeman. He said, you know, if you pray and you ask for perseverance, God doesn't give you perseverance. He gives you something to persevere through. Mm. Wow. That's so powerful. Wow. And I, I didn't know that about uh, this work or this book called Suicide and how the rates actually drop during these um, big kind of, you know, wars and pandemics. So fascinating. And I mean, that that definitely feels very true. Like a lot of people have said that they moved back with their family or that they left a, a job that they didn't like. And so it's interesting. I mean, I think I think both things are true for a lot of different people. And, and it's, it's just been, um, yeah, it's been kind of revolutionary the way that people are, are examining their life in the last year. I'll yeah. say that like it or not, right. Like we all have to kind of examine what's, what's been happening. Yeah. So, um, Eric, I want to ask, since I imagine that you read a lot of books, I also read a ton of books and I'm really curious, like what books have kind of inspired you the most, uh, you know, other than, um, I think the one that you wrote, right? But have you written the book on WildFit or is that in my imagination? No, no. I actually made a very conscious decision to not write a book about okay. WildFit because um, it would just then become a diet. And I really wanted it to be a transformational exercise. Um, but I'm very happy to report that my team one day came to me because I was kind of beating myself up about not having a book about it. And they said, well, Eric, if you take the price of WildFit and multiply it by 50,000 people over the last, <laughs> whatever, seven, eight years, and then divide that by a price of a book, you've had a New York Times bestseller every week for <laughs> five years. So no, I, but, but I am now working on a very, very um, fun and I think important book um, that actually addresses this thing that we've been talking about, this evolution gap and, and, um, and coming to terms with the complexities of civilization wow. in terms of books that have had a big impact on me. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say none more important than man's search for meaning. Mm. Um, by Viktor Frankl. I, I, that book is a book that I have traditionally read about every two years. And it seems somehow to be a different book every time I read it. Um, it really uh, has had a massive impact on the way I think and the way I um, operate and the way I parent. And, um, you know, the, the, this, this idea that between stimulus and response, there's this fleeting moment. And in that fleeting moment, we... Um, in that fleeting moment, we have the opportunity to choose our freedom. And I, I really have um, done the best I can to embody that in my life. And, and that book has definitely been a, a major impact for me. No question about it. Mm, I love that book. Yeah, that was a super powerful book for me as well. Um, I read it in my 20s. And I think actually, it's a great idea to continuously reread it. Um, because I'm sure that there's, I mean, there's so much wisdom in that book. But uh, for those who don't know, it's about um, Victor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp and lost his family. I believe he lost his wife. Um, and and it, maybe even kids and yeah. came out of it the other side and was not you know, depressed, uh, or didn't take his life, but he basically endured. And I think it's just a powerful examination of like what it is to have a perspective and controlling your perspective and not, you know, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react to it. I think is like his, yeah. um, 
you phrase. Remember but... that I think part of what made that book so compelling is that he he was a psychiatrist and he had written a book on what he called logotherapy or meaning-based therapy. And the, the 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 thesis of that book was to suggest that just about any psychological issues can be resolved with conscious meaning assessment when somebody can go back and assess the right meaning from an event. And lo and behold, he finds himself on a train headed to Auschwitz. I think he spent, he was in three different camps and, you know, suddenly he realized, oh, this, this is my chance to do conscious meaning assessment and to choose my response. And I think the world owes a huge debt of gratitude for him um, that he was able to capture those thoughts and share them with us because the, the very strategies that he used to get through the unimaginable are the same strategies we can get through that we can use to get through the, the, the moderately difficult times of our lives and, and much easier. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm going to go reread that book <laughs> after this conversation. Um, so Eric, uh, we are wrapping up, but are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and your work? I know that you obviously teach uh, two different, maybe even three different courses on Mind Valley. Can you direct point um, direct folks to where they can find you. Absolutely. Well, my publisher is Mind Valley, and I, I currently offer um, the, our, our WildFit program is on offer there. We also have an immunity uh, uh, an immunity program that's all about shoring up your immune system. And there's also a, uh, um, uh, an entre uh, entrepreneurship program now called Business Freedom Blueprint. Um, and if people want to continue the journey and go a little deeper, you can certainly go to getwildfit.com where there's a variety of different services supporting people in their health and fitness um, and, and their psychology around food. Uh, the, um, and, and I, I think that if anybody's interested in entrepreneurship, like basically what I really want to say is how to start a business that doesn't take over your whole life and really creates a, a life of freedom for you, then go to businessfreedom.com. We've got a variety of digital programs there, and I'm sure soon we'll be relaunching our, our live in-person business school programs. And, and frankly, I'm, you know, listen, I, I love what I do. And I, I uh, while I, I'm, I'm not really one for a lot of Facebook time or, or that sort of stuff, I do manage my own Instagram account. And, um, and, you know, so if anybody, if you have any follow-up questions, please feel free, pop me a DM. And about once a week, I really do my best to go through the DMs and get back to people and, and give them what I can. And my Instagram is just my name at Eric Edmeads. Amazing. Amazing. And I can also share for our audience that I have taken uh, the business blueprint class on Mind Valley, and I found it to be so powerful because I think when we think about being entrepreneurs or business owners, we often think about all the things that we have to sacrifice. And so I love that your um, frameworks and your templates and the course itself is, is really um, allowing people to think about how to create a sustainable business without sacrificing yourself in the process. So thank you so much for your time, Eric. It's so easy to talk to you. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Me too. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for you know helping me get my various musings and, and, and uh, perspectives out in the world. I appreciate it. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, and for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about creating business and health success with intention and purpose. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. Thanks again.